Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Thinking with Chuck Scott. I am Adam Pawatic, and a co-host with me is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National as well as being co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We're going to talk about a few topics today revolving around leadership and uh, how the brokerage industry has changed. We've got a longtime veteran to walk us through the conversation. And Chuck, on a personal note, I've got to say that on Aaron's and mine trophy wall of, of big guests we've spoken to, you're the only head of a major brokerage we've not spoken to. So thank you for completing the set today and agreeing <laughs> to uh, speak with us. Oh, my pleasure, Adam Aaron. Thank you. We've got a, a kind of a, an interesting uh, agenda today. We're going to get into a few different topics, but just to set the stage, as always, you know, let's hear about your background, how you got into real estate and how you ended up, you know, culminating your real estate life in this moment, of course, uh, interviewing, uh, being an interview guest on the, uh, the Ref Club Thinking. I'll do that. And, and it's, uh, this will go on my trophy wall being, being a part of this. So, so, so thank you for the opportunity and it's great to be here. Yeah. You know, my, and I, I love sharing my, my background and, and my story and sort of how I got to, to the, the position today. I actually have a degree in economics from the University of Western Ontario. And I can tell you honestly that, that corporate real estate, while it is my life now, it wasn't on the radar screen back then. In fact, truth be told, if, if you go back to those days, I think I was probably more interested in law school or, or something like that. But um, I really got really interested in business and, and, and sales and things like that as I, as I ended university. And I just want to share a quick story before I get into the, the real estate piece. But it, it's interesting. And I think the best job I actually ever had before getting into the real estate field was I was a doorman and then a, a concierge at a, a hotel in London, Ontario in one of the summers in between my, uh, I guess it was my, uh, for my final year. And it was an awesome job. And what was so awesome about it is that it taught me very, very quickly the direct correlation between being successful, making money and making people happy. And really understanding it, it really, really taught you how to understand what's important to somebody, how to get them what they need in real time and troubleshoot. It was a great, great job. And what it did is it got me hooked. It got me hooked on sales and, and relationship management and developing connections and things like that. So like many of us, when I graduated, I, you know, I, I got a shot. It actually with a, my wife's family in the real estate business was able to sort of pioneer with them as they were starting a, a company back in the, in the mid 90s. So I've, I've been in the business for 25 years, but started with a very boutique real estate consulting and project management company. We were actually kind of a little bit ahead of our time back then. It was, we were the, the, the corporate service model, a company called the Gordian Group. We were kind of like the corporate service model before that was really big in, inside the real estate firms. And it was a great model and it was, it was a great opportunity because it was a, a small entrepreneurial company that allowed me to grow and that allowed me to really learn the business by doing it. So 
in many small companies, you know, you're responsible for for sourcing the opportunity, doing the work, managing the relationship, all of these types of things. So, so I was the president of that company and grew it to, to a decent side. We had multiple offices across the country and, and a couple of field offices in the U.S. But then we sold that business to Cushman in 2008. That's how I got to Cushman and and actually started my my time at Cushman as the president of the Occupier Services Group. So really running their corporate service platform all the big tenant relationships, which is fantastic. And then in 2016, when Cushman and Wakefield merged with DTZ globally, that's when I became CEO of the organization in Canada. And it's just been a fabulous opportunity since then. You know, we've grown a great team and a great business here. I oversaw the Latin America business for for a little over a year and, and now sit on the America's executive committee for Cushman and Wakefield. So it was a really unique kind of journey for me over 25 years of not having real estate on my radar at all to getting a shot and working in a, a small boutique entrepreneurial environment to now uh, becoming the CEO of a region uh, inside a global public company. So quite a cool journey. You know, I'm going to put words in your mouth, Chuck. You didn't say it explicitly, but it sounded like you got into commercial real estate as a result of love. I don't know if the <laughs> wife came first before the real estate or if it was real estate and then uh, you met your wife, but uh, I'd, I'd like to believe it was love because I think that's the first time we've ever had somebody say that that's how they found commercial real estate. Uh, you, uh, absolutely. absolutely <laughs> my wife first and real estate later. So uh, yeah, so needless to say, real estate's been a part of our family. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like that. That's, that's the first. Those We've had, you know, probably about a hundred guests tell their story getting into real estate. I think that's the first time where love was the uh, the pinnacle. So now it's 2016. You said you kind of took over the leadership of the the Canadian uh, division of Christian Wakefield. Maybe let's just talk about what it was back then, and maybe kind of transition into you know the people, you know, the culture that you have, and then of course we have to talk about COVID. You know, being a leader of such a large organization. I'm sure you've been experiencing profound uh, impact as a result of COVID. So maybe let's just set the stage of kind of who you were or what what it was when you kind of took over and kind of lead us into sort of the the year that we've kind of all been experiencing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned, I I took this role in 2016 and, and that was, you know, around the same time. It was actually a pivotal time for Cushman and Wakefield because that was the time that that Cushman and Wakefield really went from 14,000 to 47, now over 50,000 people overnight with the merger with, with DCZ. So I think most people know that Cushman and Wakefield in Canada, the legacy, very proud legacy, are roots in Royal LePage and Royal LePage commercial and, and, and sort of grew that way. Royal LePage then had, a, had an affiliation with Cushman and Wakefield and, and was a private company for the majority of its journey and, and then was you know purchased by a private equity company that that ultimately took us uh, uh, public. But it's an interesting story because the journey of Cushman and Wakefield, Brett White, our global CEO, who many would know, was the CEO of uh, CB Richard Ellis for for many 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 years. When he when he finished that journey, he really wanted to to create a global uh, you know another global powerhouse real estate brand. And actually went on a journey of several acquisitions with some with a private equity consortium that ultimately ended up in this merger between DTZ and Cushman and Wakefield globally. And, and that's when 
when I started this. And boy, at, at that point, it really took the company to a massive new level and allowed us to, here in Canada, around the world, but, but here in Canada especially, grow and really have a growth mindset. So if you actually look at what the business was here in Canada then in 2016 to what it is today, boy, it's two to three times the size of it because of, because of that growth. So it's been, a really, it's been a really expansive period of time from where we were to where we are now. I'm sure the papering that uh, merger, I'm sure the document's got to be a couple hundred pages long, but nowhere in it would you see anything to do with philosophy or culture or you know, integrating work styles. So how have you stick handled that portion of trying to merge two entities? Well, yeah, listen, and that that's one of the biggest challenges whenever you do, you know, a, an acquisition. And and of course we had that, you know, around the world to deal with, but but here in Canada, even more specifically over the last several years, you know, Cushion and Wakefield having acquired Ashler Urban and, and 20 Vic, it really is integrating those cultures. It's super important. And it takes time. It takes time, it takes energy. And especially if if some of these groups are smaller entrepreneurial that are coming into a larger organization, here's the key I found. First of all, is to is to be patient with it and to allow allow yourself and allow the company and the culture to become better because of the addition. And it's really about taking the best of the other group or the best of the past and put it together to create something better. And so I think it's come together, you know, really, really well. And in Canada, for example, you could come to the 161 Bay offices of Cushman and Wakefield, and you'd see on the main floor that our two main boardrooms, one's called the Royal LePage Room, one's called the, the Barnicky Room, because of, of those two great iconic brands coming together through, through the merger. Well, I mean, Chuck, let's just keep moving forwards on, you know, just the chronologic I'm not even sure I said that right. I apologize. We can call it timeline. Uh, make it easy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, the timeline. Thanks. Yeah, you should do. You should have my job because I guess. And so, so you, you, I mean, you've had these a number of different mergers with different organizations, which complicates culture just but naturally. And then, of course, throw into the mix, you know, a work from home pandemic and and you know everything that we've experienced in the last sort of 12, 14 months. If you just talk through what it's been like being the leader of an organization, trying to maintain that culture, what you've done as the leader, and just, you know, maybe as we lead into the rest of the conversation around sort of office use, just how that's been sort of part of your, I, I'm assuming probably the biggest challenge you face as a leader in this organization. Oh, l- listen, no doubt. It, it's, it's been a very interesting time to be a leader. Really, it's just, it's an interesting time for all of us in in this in this period, um, and if I if I think back to sort of over the last year and a bit, and sort of where we are and where we're going, it's almost like it's in phases. That that first phase, when the when the pandemic first started, it was it was managing chaos. How do we how do we keep our people safe? How do we keep our clients safe? And just get everybody in in, in a in a in a place that it, that again is is as safe as can be. Then it was how do we stand up a remote working environment, a work from home work environment? How do we keep the business running through this and and put guardrails as best we can up around that and stay engaged with each other and our clients? And then now entering that phase of okay, boy, if we can, you know, we're really rounding the corner and, and seeing the other the other side here. How do we get back and how do we get ready and and and, and get back 
that back into things. You know, you guys have probably seen it in, in your organization too. A disruption like this really, it's interesting because it shines a light on things. It shines a light on the great things that you have in your organization, but it also shines a light on the fault lines. And while that's uncomfortable sometimes, it's almost always good because it allows you to learn, address things, and get better. I, I, I tell you, for us, it's, it's just it, probably no, no different than anyone else that, that's listening to this. It's how do you keep people engaged? So it's, you know, first of all, with, with our own people, how do we work in this remote environment? How do we keep a culture alive, which is, which is difficult to do through Teams and Zoom and, and things like that? But we implemented a lot of great things that actually that I hope live on in terms of the way that we communicate with, with, with each other. For, you know, for example, I remember you know, I would do town halls you know, every quarter or something like that and, and a lot less frequently. We're doing them every month now because we've learned how to really do them well virtually. And that just creates better touch points. And I mean national, you know, across our entire, entire employee base. So there's certain things that have developed in how we're communicating with our people that I really hope live on. But, but I guess, you know, as a leader, I would say this, it's, it's you know, if I, I, I sort of think about things in, 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 in threes. So if there, if there are three things that, that I've really learned and am still learning about how to handle this, one is to be present and just really make sure that you and your team are as present as can be, but also respect boundaries. Because as we're all appreciating, or I know I am, you can see boundaries blur a lot. And it's really important to respect those boundaries. But by being present at the same time, I guess the second is being balanced. So making sure that you're listening and really understanding how people are feeling and what's important to them and their families in this time, while at the same time having to run a business and having to make some real decisions and things that people might not be fans of, but dealing with that head on and transparently. And, and I guess finally, and this is a big one for me, for those that know me, it's to be vulnerable, to make sure that as a leader, it's okay to not have all the answers and to let people know that. Let them know what you do know and communicate to that, but it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to feel like you're moving backwards one day. I think just as a leader, letting people know that that authenticity is there is, is really important. Yeah, I would agree entirely with that. I've had a lot more discussion with my coworkers now about how you're doing, how you're working through this, and that kind of attitude that you have would permeate the entire culture and would be beneficial for everybody as they you know, move through a very challenging period. Uh, it's it seemed that you know in, in March of last year everybody's attention got focused on timeframes that involved a week or a day you know very short timeframes what are we doing how are we pivoting uh, but as we come out of COVID timeframes that people are contemplating have definitely expanded out you know now we're talking about a year from now now we're talking about two years from now what does that look like so as I'm sure you've done as well as you've expanded the the, the time horizons that you're thinking beyond you know, what was a year ago, just surviving COVID. And now we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're moving towards it. What do you see for Cushman as we move out of COVID over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, first of all, that's a great, uh, that's a great observation. And, and I think that people's lenses are tied to their degree of certainty. And when there's real tremendous uncertainty, it's, it's, it's a real short lens or, you know, just not a wide lens. It, it gets wider and longer 
as certainty gets a bit better. And that's where we find ourselves now. Here, Listen, I mean, I think that this is an opportunistic time for us at Cushman and Wakefield. Number one, number one, we have to be very, very aware of our people. Listen, that's our our commitment to have to attract and retain and develop the best the best talent in the industry. I'm really proud of the people that we have in the organization. And this will be taking a lot of toll on them, on on all of us, frankly. And I think that as we go forward being super mindful that as an organization, we have outlets for that and that we're aware of that. But it's also an opportunity to grow in a prudent way. Our mission and our mandate as a global integrated real estate advisory firm is to be able to take a client, be them an occupier client or an investor client, through the entire cycle, their entire life cycle. So we want to make sure that we've got service spokes that are allowed to do that. So as we go forward, it's it's, how do we build those capabilities if we don't have them? We're, We're fortunate to have most, if not all of them. How do we scale them where they need to be scaled? And then how do we innovate them? So it's just about people, platform, clients, organizing around our relationships and having a growth mindset while managing the business in a real prudent way. Well, and Chuck, we, we, we clearly we had a conversation before we went live here and, and you had advised or kind of indicated that you, you really felt there was some fundamental shifts occurring in the commercial real estate world. And maybe just elaborate on, on what you're seeing and what, what's kind of transpiring. And I assume it's not necessarily a direct result of COVID because I think there were, there were some changes occurring pre-COVID. But COVID, you know, I think we've all experienced has you know, accelerated a whole bunch of changes in our world, yeah. not commercial real estate, but others. Um, so what is it that you're kind of seeing? And what are you, I mean, I don't want to use the word predicting, but what do you kind of think is going to occur in the future that, that is going to be just sort of new and unique to what we've experienced historically? Yeah, and and I think you know it's it's, it's a good point that that you may we we talked about that is is a, a lot of the things that we're seeing right now are coming out sort of the other side of this. One could say, hey, they they're there because of this disruption. The the fact of the matter is, a lot of these things weren't born in the disruption; they were accelerated by the disruption. You know, so you talk about the industry, and I mentioned it sort of you know sort of earlier. I, I think that, and this speaks to sort of maybe how some of the need, you know, needs are changing with, with clients these days, be them occupiers or investors. They're just, you know, they're making decisions differently. And, you know, I, I say all the time, you know, when it comes to occupiers, they're, they're making much more than real estate decisions. They're making occupancy decisions. So, so there's so much more information and intelligence that needs to go into the, the decision they're making. And so they need their service partners to be able to have that advisory capability. So one of the shifts, and again, this isn't, this isn't new and wasn't born from the pandemic, but it's accelerated because of the needs of clients. You're seeing a lot of firms just having to expand their capabilities and expand their, um, their ability to be an intelligence partner for their clients. We were very fortunate at Cushman and Wakefield because of our global positioning and and to you know have been one of the larger managers of of space in Asia, to have been sort of out ahead of of COVID 
in this pandemic in terms of bringing people back to to work and, and getting offices ready to reopen. So we were able to leverage that intelligence and bring it here to America. That type of that type of thinking and that type of data is something that clients are needing right now to to make their decisions. You know, we also talk about just the change in use of space, you know, in general. I'm sure we'll get to this topic, but but it, it, maybe this is a segue into it. But about just office, right? In 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 general, and and there's all kinds of conversations and and points of view on that. Um, you know, on on where where is the office and and what's the future of work? Again, my personal point of view is the office is absolutely not going away. There is a reason why there are billions of square feet of space around the world, and it's a fundamental part of how businesses operate. What I do believe is that the the place of the office in the overall workplace ecosystem of a company is going to be rethought and its purpose is going to be rethought. And, and that's, that's going to be a fundamental change, not, not, the, not the need of office, but the use of office and what it's there for. That's a that's a good hook, Chuck. Because we are we're going to spend the the last um, you know few minutes you know ten fifteen minutes of this interview on the use of office and and just what's transpiring in that marketplace. Chuck, you talked about just this this change of decision making from an occupier uh, perspective, which of course has implications on the the landlords. What is it that you are doing with your organization to keep up with them? What kind of information are you now seeing that's that's needed? For those clients that may not have been needed historically, yeah, well, well, well certainly it, it's it's everything from advanced location. So anything to do with demographics, anything to do with people patterns, and and things like that. I, we're seeing more and more companies, and this this is the fundamental change just in the business I've seen over the years. It, it used to be only the very big sort of international occupier clients or institutional investors that wanted this sort of second and third level, level of intelligence in their decision. Now we're seeing every, everyone want that. You know, when, when, when someone's making a, a decision to locate a new uh, manufacturing facility or something like that, in, in many cases, uh, it, it's actually not even so much about how much rent is going to be or, or operating costs or, or things like that. It's, it's about, you know, socioeconomic, you know, conditions uh, in a market or, you know, demographic or competitor footprinting, things like that, that, you know, our strategic consulting group and, and, and others, you know, are able to, to bring to the table. So a lot, I see a, a lot more robust demand and desire for upfront strategic intelligence in, in making the decision. and then. Again, how we've been keeping up is just, uh, I referred to it earlier, is making sure that we can take a client through the entire cycle. So, you know, in, in, the, in the case of, a, of an investor, that, that we do have that strategic consulting group that can help them position their portfolio and, and, and you, know, you know, help them think of how things should be structured. And then a, a debt and equity and structured finance group to help them underwrite you know something that they want to buy, and then a, you know a capital markets brokerage firm group, a group that can can help them buy, and then a property management group that can manage the the property that they own, and a valuation group that can help them market to markets. Well, then Chuck, like, let's transition to office use, right? And just what's going on 
what you're hearing from your from your clients. You know, I, I, there's a whole bunch of unknowns, right? We don't know how comfortable people are going to be going back to the office. We don't know about the use of transportation, what that looks like. You know, we had an interview with um, some individuals yesterday on our, our Ask the Experts where they were talking about, you know, a, an affinity towards a hub and spoke model where we're going to see a lot of uh, occupiers starting to look for sort of a headquarters, but, the, you know, smaller, smaller scale with sort of outside offices and sort of more suburban locations uh, that allows for quicker transportation. I mean, there seems to be just a whole bunch of potential theories. I think they're all just theories right now as we're still kind of seeing our way out of COVID. What do you think is going to happen? I know you've already stated once that, you know, you truly believe office is not dead and we're going to come back to it. Are we going to go back to it 100% the way it was? Or is there a hybrid model? You know, how do you think it's going to play itself out? I think that that office is is going to be just rethought. Its purpose is going to be reexamined. And you mentioned, Aaron, the hub and spoke that could very well be, it, it could be something where the office is actually just a collaboration zone. The heads down work is done at home. I, I do think that the majority of work is going to be done in the physical office. I think it will be a hybrid. Do I think it's going to go back exactly the way it was? No, but we'll be innovative and better for the process. So Chuck, on that topic, you were alluding to you know, everybody's level of sophistication in real estate is is increasing and the expertise levels demanded by clients, uh, you know, are increasing. So within the office world, if we're going to have these these different working models, would you see that, you know, brokers would specialize in working with clients that want to set up a hub and spoke, you know, setup or ones that wanted to work, you know, with hoteling setup? Would you have, would you see a further siloing of knowledge in terms of people really drilling down into a specific, you know, sub-sub office type in order to, to, you know, bring more value, you know, raise their game when they're working with their clients? Yeah, I'm not sure if it would do something where brokers would actually specialize in, in you know, hub and spoke type transactions and whatnot. What they will do, though, I think is bring a lot more of this strategic consulting intelligence as part of the transaction process. So as they're trying to help their clients figure out how much space they need and where they need it and what length of term and where to be, they're going to incorporate a lot of that thinking into the ultimate transaction. Uh, how has technology improved the way brokers can, can transact? Uh, yeah, we'll, and we'll ignore, of course, the issues we're having today with ours. But uh, I, as just as an example, I remember when I started in, in brokerage and speaking with you know, people that have been at it for a long time. And they said, you know, Google Street View is the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, saved saved tons of time from having to you know, get a quick read on a neighborhood. I, they even cited the invention of the desktop computer replacing typewriters as a big advance forward in, in time. The fax machine always gets cited as another one. The, you know, the people aren't driving around town getting deals uh, signed. What has it helped in the last you know, five years as you would have had visibility on trying to improve your company's, uh, you know, operation skills, profitability, you know, with technology, and what were those tools? Yeah, l- listen, I think t- technology is is a major part of our business, and and allowing us to be a better partner for our clients, you know, being more efficient, being quicker, and and just being a broader, intelligent partner. There's property tech types of solutions, anything from virtual touring. And, and geo warehousing and all of these types of modeling tools that have made our 
business that much more advanced. Uh, and just just analytics, financial analytics, and 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 all of the tools that go into that have been fantastic because what it allows us to do is to just help make better, smarter decisions for for the clients. Well, let, let's stick to technology, but on a, on a slightly different angle. You know, we're, we're 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 talking about office use. One of the things that comes to mind about you know new amenities is just you know, our, our tenants, the occupiers feeling safe. Are you, are you having conversations about just what that looks like and what new, I don't want to use the word technology, but what new innovations are needed to really kind of get back to where, you know, we've got sort of full, full usage of our office space? Well, yeah, the, listen, that's on everybody's mind is to make sure that the offices, you know, are ready to accept people back and, and the environment is as safe as it can be. And, and protocols uh, and whatnot, air handling, of course, and 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 you know, air, air degree is on everybody's mind. I know that landlords are are really looking at how their buildings can be best in class there, and tenants are looking at how they can supplement air quality with their own technology and and their own tools. So I've got to, I've got to ask uh, how you're handling the the return to work endeavor at Cushman because you uh, would have already had by the virtue of having a lot of real estate agents working there people that were not showing up clocking in at eight thirty sitting themselves down for eight hours and then clocking out you already had a, a workforce that's pretty mobile pretty active working on the fly working on planes so what do you envision for you know Cushman specifically the uh, return to office yeah first of all we. Our commitment is to make sure that our offices are and will be open. Of course, in Ontario, this is a curious time right now with the the stay at home order. But our our objective is to make sure that the office is open and ready to accept back our employees when they're ready to come back. And and so you know what we've done is is really put in place protocols that actually we've I mentioned it earlier for the 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 work that we did in Asia, the safe six principles that we brought to the market, really implementing those and, and making sure that we have a, an environment that, that's good for our, our employees to come back. And listen, I think you, you mentioned it, Adam. It, it, I don't think it's unique to the brokerage business. The office is going to be used differently by different people. And some people are really comfortable working remotely. Uh, and only will come into the office when there's something that they absolutely can't do remotely. Uh, and others feel like they need to be in there to collaborate or to have heads down work or, or, or just be the most productive person they could be. And we want to make sure that we have that available for both camps. Are there lessons, Chuck, that you're, that you're experiencing from other jurisdictions outside of Canada? I mean, I know you have some exposure to uh, other other national organizations within Cushman Wakefield, what are they experiencing if they're in different stages of return to office? Uh, is the use changing? Are they going back to normal? What does it look like? Yeah, you don't even have to look much farther than than the U.S. It seems to be a little bit farther ahead than us in terms of returning back into offices and whatnot. I think that here's what people have realized. Remote work is important and it has its place. And for some companies, it might be a bigger place than other. But what 
everyone seems to realize is that the office is a very important piece of a business's operation. And in one way, shape, or form, especially if it's collaboration and culture building and and security and things like that, they need to get people back into the offices in a safe and prudent manner. Given all the the, the rapid change in office, I mean, obviously offices were changing prior to COVID, but uh, COVID was a real uh, hyper accelerator into uh, you know a new working mode. What are you telling to the investors in in offices? I mean, we know largely that uh, you know pension funds like them, but there are all types of investors in that asset class. So, what's the proposition now? If you know Aaron and I came to you and said, "Hey, we want, we want to buy an office tower," what's the proposition to us in terms of what it's bringing to to our investment? Well, listen, I think that investors who are in the office space right now. It's funny, I hosted a, a panel, a webinar a week or so ago and, and had some of the uh, the top office investor owners on the panel. And it, you know, it, it's a unanimous consensus that, that there's a strong conviction in office. And the investment thesis really hasn't changed. And investors will continue innovate to, to innovate their their buildings and and think of ways to reamenitize and 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 redevelop their assets to go along with the way that work might change but i would say to to investors current or would be that uh, over time that you know the 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 office while it might might have you know a short sort of blip in terms of uh, key metrics the fundamentals will be very stable and it's it's a great space you know, we've only got a couple minutes left, Chuck, and I, I think we'd be remiss not to cover just the impact of, you know, co-working as tenants in the office space and just how that business line has been impacted by COVID. I mean, pre-COVID, shoot, it felt like every week there was another announcement that some, you know, whether we work or any one of the other major co-working enterprises were signing another offer to lease for another major chunk of office space. I believe they were the largest tenant in Manhattan by the time the pandemic took hold and probably the large major tenant in, in major, most major urban centers. What, what's happened with them? One of the biggest selling features of that business model was the opportunity for collaboration. And they had these large sort of, you know, community areas for, for working. You could even go and just rent the space to go and sit in a people out in the middle of the community area, which, you know, Mid-COVID seems just not attractive. Probably post-COVID, it slowly picks up. But what are your your landlords talking about or your, your investor owners talking about as it relates to just their hesitancy, perhaps, to engage with, with new tenant space as it relates to co-working? Or is it just more of a long-term thesis that eventually it will, it will come back to the same strength it had previously? Well, I think it starts with co-working as a part of a company's overall occupancy strategy. Again, I think that flexible work environments and and co-working and things like that will continue to be something that occupiers are thinking about as they, again, make that overall workplace ecosystem sort of roadmap. Now, who provides that and and how they they sort of achieve those co-working scenarios remains to be seen. I think that we will see the emerging of you know, maybe some different uh, different ways to provide that. You know, are, are companies trying to do that on their own? How do landlords 
you know, maybe provide that inside their buildings in a different way. But, but I, I think that, I think that as we get back to a more, let's call it normal working environment, and I don't even know that there will be uh, a normal and what the new normal actually is, but I'm relatively certain that the collaborative nature of how we work is going to show up and continue to show up in some sort of co-working scenario and flexible scenario for for companies. You said something interesting there about you know landlords incorporating that into their building or their facility. Are those conversations taking place with some of the the major office holders across Canada that they would instead of head leasing to a co-working group, just reserve a building for that portion of the building for that use. Is that actually uh, taking place now? Yeah, I think that every landlord is different. But I mentioned it earlier about them wanting to innovate institutional owners, landlords wanting to innovate their operating models. I'm certain that they're thinking through what are my options in terms of how to create flexible co-working environments in in my in my building is that third party do i do it myself do i collaborate with the tenant for them to do it themselves and i think good good landlord tenant partnerships have those innovative conversations together i'm trying to think of the best way to wrap this up but i'm wondering if you just have some final words just on on what we're expected to see as far as amenities go uh, or or maybe it's TIs that we're seeing from the landlord owners. I mean, clearly there's some softening of the office market. You know, it's clearly not going to be nearly as heady as it was, you know, in 2018 and 2019. And are you are you having conversations about just different ways to induce tenants to stay, take more space? You know, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, we're all now accustomed to Uber Eats or DoorDash for lunches. You know, how do you how do you accommodate those that type of demand or or what other things are you are you seeing? Are you or do you believe will come, you know, as far as just the a different design of, of office space? Yeah, I I really do think it's gonna it's gonna evolve and it's gonna come out of companies figuring out what the office is gonna be used for. And it could change. So if if occupiers sort of move towards this, hey, the the office is going to be more for collaboration, client-facing type of work, and, and back office work is done somewhere else remotely. That requires a different type of build and a different set of amenities. And I really think that the future of work will inform design of the occupier space and how the investor innovates their building to accommodate it. You know, things like will fitness and you know environments still be in in buildings? Is it important for the building to be amenity rich or for the building to be in an amenity rich area? You know, so questions like this will continue to be asked and answered. And and again, I, I'll 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 say it again, what I'm seeing are landlords and tenants talking a lot right now about what each other needs. So so a landlord asking, hey, what do you think your space is going to be like? What do you need in the building? And, and what can I do to accommodate you? And I think that will that will continue. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating topic, Chuck. I think there's there's still a lot for us to discover, but it's um, 
it's exciting. You know, you can almost, you feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And at some point, hopefully you and I will be sitting in an office collaborating, looking at each other face to face, not through a screen and relying on technology to ensure our communication is, is uh, acceptable. We're out of time for this portion of the interview. Chuck, thanks so much. That was a, a really great conversation. Really enjoyed the time. My, listen, my pleasure. Thank you for the op- opportunity. I'm sorry for the technology. And as I'm, I'm hearing my voice twice, I'm talking into one microphone and hearing it in my ears. So if, I, if I'm delayed, it's because I'm feeling imbalanced. But, uh, but thank you. It's great. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.